Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode is top fuel racer Sean Langdon and sportsman standout Luke Bagacki. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. We're talking downtime and the mental game of sportsman drag racing. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace. This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hello and welcome to another edition of the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. We are back with more pro-level and sportsman-level interviews here today, just like we did with last week's show, kind of splitting the show in half. We're going to talk to professional and sportsman racer Sean Langdon first, and then we're going to talk to Luke Bugacki, who is one of the most accomplished sportsman drag racers in the world, a guy who has been a world champion, a guy who um, spends a lot of time now kind of educating other people, giving other people the tools to succeed on the drag strip and the very highly mentally tough game of sportsman drag racing. Going to talk a lot about that with Luke when we get to his portion of this NHRA Insider Podcast. What's been going on in the world of NHRA drag racing? Well, we know that we haven't been racing anything. Uh, News so far has been uh, fairly quiet this week. I'm suspecting that it may stay that way. Uh, Of course, 50-50 shot, we hear something about what may be happening in June at the 51st running of the Amelie Oil Gator Nationals. We'll find out anything about that either late this week or early next week is my understanding from some conversations I've had that NHRA officials, of course, monitoring the situation, everything that's going on, not only in Florida, but across the country. Uh, nobody wants to get back to drag racing more than we do. That is a, that is a promise. And uh, I know that they want to make the right call for the sport, for everybody's health, and to make sure that we can, uh, once we get started, making sure that start is a sustainable thing to do. So we will keep our ears peeled on anything that's going on in the world of NHRA drag racing in that respect. Um, We're going to talk iRacing a little bit with Sean Langdon, and Sean's going to take us through kind of his journey in iRacing, which has been interesting, and the fact that um, kind of started on a whim and has become a very solid competitor and has worked his way um, really through the ranks. I mean, the guy is competing in open wheel events with legitimate IndyCar drivers, and he's racking up top 10 finishes. So we're going to talk about how his evolution has come along there. Also going to talk about just kind of mentally what he's been doing to keep himself fresh and prepared and uh, what his outlook is on what the current scene in the sport looks like. When we get to Luke, as I mentioned, we're going to go into the mental aspect of the game. But to stick on this iRacing thing, I talked to Ron Caps on last week's show, and he was pretty excited about what he was going to be doing on the iRacing uh, show on FS1 on Wednesday evening. And he was rightfully excited about that. He finished fifth and uh, came in just behind, like, Bobby Labonte was one of the guys. Kevin Harvick were right in front of him. He was only two-tenths of a second behind the leader. So... Uh, it will be a fairly interesting and I would say mildly momentous occasion, especially in today's climate, uh, if and when one of our drivers is able to win one of these iRacing events and kind of take it to the competitors in that uh, genre of motorsports, the one that spends the ones that spend their time competing uh, in the real world on that style of course. So very fun to be watching the evolution of our competitors in that sense and on that front. A passing in the world of drag racing was Barb Hamilton. She was 78 years old. And Barb Hamilton, one of the great women of drag racing history. And we talk a lot about Shirley Shahan. We talk, of course, about Shirley Muldowney and Carolyn Cox. Rightfully so, all these women that helped pave the way for the female competitors of today. But I'm not sure we'd be talking about any of them 
unless we talked about Barb Hamilton, uh, because Barb was out there very early on, and she was in very fast cars. She raced in the gasser categories. She was the first woman to be granted uh, a competition license by the NHRA for a supercharged vehicle. And her Willie's Gasser can be seen at the Don Garlitz Museum of Drag Racing. Uh, she had many notable moments in her career, won lots of match races, traveled the country, was as fast as anybody, was as talented a mechanic as anybody, and uh, nearly won a U.S. Nationals back in the 1960s. So um, if if she had been able to win that final round at the at Indy, as big a moment as we have had and, and, and continue to have for women in drag racing, that would have been titanic in the, uh, in the mid to late 1960s. But Barb Hamilton, um, one of the things that was great about Barb, I, I got to know her a little bit over the course of her later years. I met her at some of the early gasser reunions that took place uh, in Ohio in the early 2000s, and then I would see her at, at other events. Um, she was a vivacious woman, full of life, very fun, and the type of personality that, you know, I wish she was racing today because she has a type of personality that absolutely would, beyond a shadow of a doubt, be magnetic to the fan base of, uh, of drag racing in the in the year 2020. But Barb Hamilton, 78 years old, she passed away and um, just a great lady who she was very, um, I would say humbled. She was she was almost surprised that people remembered her and she was surprised about people that people remembered and kind of honored what she did happily surprised about it she wasn't um disgruntled drag racer there's a lot of those out there but she was not one of them she was genuinely appreciative when people that were far younger than her would would ask for an autograph would shake her hand would ask for stories from back in the day so Barb Hamilton, a loss to the sport of drag racing, and it's been an unfortunate trend over the last uh, month or two. We've had some notable passings in the sport, but such is the nature of time, I suppose. But Barb Hamilton will be missed, and uh, she really, really brought a lot of color, flavor, and talent to the sport. We talk about some of the other things that have been going on over the course of the week. If you've been following on NHRA.com, the Cobra Jet 1400 got dropped, and this thing caused all kinds of fervor on the internet. You know, basically Ford's answer to the Ecopo. Um, this car actually constructed by several of the, the the people, the groups, the companies that worked on the Ecopo as well. And the fourteen hundred stands for the fourteen hundred horsepower rated output of the electric motor, um, eleven hundred pounds feet of torque. Immediately off of idle, of course, an electric motor um, at you know makes max torque from the second you apply power to it. It's just a flat curve. It's not a gasoline engine that that kind of rises and peaks and falls. An electric motor makes the torque um, instantaneously and just continues to make it. So there was some video released, and of course the sound of that video was released, and the sound you hear is kind of the whirring of the electric motor, the whirring of the transmission and rear axle. You hear the tires clawing at the drag strip. And uh, this car is very fast, I would assume, um, Motorsports being what they are and the rivalry of Ford and Chevrolet being what it is. I assume that we will be seeing this car challenging the numbers put up by the Ecopo really quick. I think Ford wants to be able to claim some supremacy in terms of electric drag racing performance. And of course, still lurking out there is a the first 200 mile an hour pass for a car, an electric car. Motorcycles have done it. There has been a 200 mile per hour electric motorcycle, but... No one has made 200 miles an hour in a car electrically in the quarter mile. Big Daddy Don Garlitz was uh, and has been, continues to be investing a lot of time in his project, now working with Holly EVI, which is their electric vehicle wing at Holly Performance now, to try to get that done. So we're going to keep our eyes peeled on the, the Cobra Jet 1400. 
Not the E-Cobra Jet, the Cobra Jet 1400. They didn't want it to sound too similar to the Copo, apparently. And we're going to keep our eyes peeled on Don Garlitz's project because when they're able to get that baby out of dry dock and onto the racetrack, I believe in my heart that he will be the first to go 200. Hopefully that happens soon, maybe at a private test session somewhere. Going to keep my my ears to the, <clears throat> to the railroad tracks on that to stay up on the information. Please make sure you're following NHRA.com and all of our social media channels to stay up on all the news potentially that is coming, will come, you know, as this whole thing moves on. But enough of me babbling. I think we need to get going with our first guest on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. He is a former Top Fuel World Champion. He proved his medal in a funny car, winning a couple of races over the course of a couple of seasons. He's back in Top Fuel, and we're joined now by Sean Langdon. So you've been hanging in there, keeping busy, uh, like I guess a lot of the racers have been with the iRacing stuff and uh, maybe polishing your dragster, I don't know. But I want to talk to you first about your iRacing experience because you seem to have concentrated on the IndyCar style stuff. And uh, any reason for that in particular? Um, yeah, because there's no drag racing. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you get to pick. You get to pick from the you know dirt track stuff, the sprint cars, stock cars. But you've been mostly an open wheel guy in this iRacing thing. Well, yeah, just kind of beca- uh, just was the opportunity that kind of presented itself. Um, I kind of got into the iRacing scene in the beginning of the year. Uh, I, I actually had purchased a unit from uh, Chad Wheeler, WR1 uh, simulator chassis, and, um, and got talking with him, and, and uh, he sent me a really nice unit. So I kind of started messing with that in the days – the, just before I had left for testing. Um, Remember those days? Uh, yes, those days. Magical times. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So, But, yeah, I kind of started out in that and uh, just really kind of started just getting my license up and, and trying to get the my uh, safety rating up and uh, just to kind of open the game up a little bit more. And, and so I just kind of done a lot of the racing uh, that was presented itself, uh, you know, kind of on the hourly within the game. Um, and then as it kind of progressed, I was, uh, I was, uh, Chad Frankenfeld, uh, with the, uh, um, elite racing group had, uh, reached out to me and Chris Blair, uh, from worldwide technology raceway. Uh, they had an IndyCar race going on at St. Louis. And so it kind of, uh, opened up where they were streaming it live on speed 51 and so it was kind of like well you know give that a shot i wasn't really uh good at any any car <laughs> by any means um i i had started out and and i had done a lot of like the at the point where i had progressed in the game i was racing in a lot of the uh the truck series stuff okay um so I was really kind of concentrating on that. And then uh, Mark Rebellis kept trying to get me to do the IndyCar stuff. He, he really liked doing the IndyCar stuff. So just to kind of get, you know, some buddies in within the same game until we were racing IndyCars, and I was just terrible. I wasn't any good at all. And <laughs> I actually got to a point where I told him, I said, I'm sick and tired of racing IndyCars because I always seem to wreck or get wrecked. And, and I w- could never finish a race. And just so I, I really wasn't kind of went into it was like well here's an opportunity just to you know maybe do something get like a sponsor uh paint job and you know maybe just kind of open it up a little bit more uh just kind of the horizons of the deal and so it was really kind of neat that um i i went in and actually jr had come over one of the first days that i started practicing on st louis at, at the track and uh 
and he was just laughing because I was terrible. I was spinning out every turn, and and I said, I don't think I'm going to do this race. I, I really don't – like, this isn't fun for me. <laughs> so I just kind of really just started practicing. And then it just kind of – for me, I, I'm the type of guy, if you challenge me to something, I'm going to figure it out. Sure. And so I practiced a lot. And so it just kind of evolved from there. Um, and then at the time, uh, Graham Rahal – was invited into the same race so i i kind of started picking his brain on some things about driving the cars and just certain feels of you know it's, it's pretty cool for somebody like me that's i've always had interest in the fact of watching yeah, sure. car racing um not necessarily like road course stuff but just more of like like the indy 500 and the bigger races like that always sounds really cool i always enjoy watching like the youtube videos of when they go on to like these ovals and man these guys are crazy and uh just looks pretty intense um but i didn't really have much experience out of that but it's really neat on racing these simulators how much feedback you really get as far as like with the steering wheel and the gas and the brake of of the feels that it gives you um obviously you know, it's kind of hard to simulate uh, Z-forces. You can't really do right. that. But all the other feelings you get uh, from it, you know, it's it's pretty pretty dang close, man. And it, it became kind of a challenge for me. It became a little bit fun as I started kind of progressing in it. So then just from there, you know, the first race, I, I, uh, I made a rookie mistake spot myself out uh, in three and four, hit the rumble strip. But at one point I got to second place and was like, man, this is, this is kind of neat. This is pretty cool for me racing against you know guys like graham or connor daly or, or hinchcliffe will power yeah guys, guys that kind of understand the dynamics of these cars that have been doing it their whole life sure right so so it became kind of fun the second race we went to indianapolis and um i was running six with seven laps to go and uh got caught up hinchcliffe spun out and got caught up in a wreck with him but it just became it was just an opportunity and it became fun so that's kind of what's been showcased a little bit uh as far as the the races that have been put on there i've, I've done some a lot of other races sure. the, the cup stuff um when i kind of graduated up to the b level i got in an xfinity car and i was slow really slow um in in the uh it, with the xfinity cars and so I didn't really know much about it. So kind of utilized the contact that I have with the uh, Slinger Lobby. And I called him up and I oh, said, nice. hey, man, I'm, I'm really slow. And I said, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but it just feels like the car is like really tight. So I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what to do with chassis. So he goes, okay. He tells me, I send him kind of a <laughs> screenshot of all the different things he can change. And so he uh, gave me some advice and, and change this and this and this and do that. And, so I go out there, hit the gas on the car immediately, like spins around. And he's like, okay, now, now we know what we can work with. So then he, it was kind of neat. Cause just kind of working with him on like, you know, just for half hour, an hour, just picking up a couple tenths of a second on the lap time. And I don't know, it's just, it's pretty neat. It's, it's actually a really, really cool. I mean, there's really no way to actually simulate racing a car or driving a car. But yeah. I really feel like this is probably as close as you're going to get. Yeah. without actually doing it and along those lines you know you said you raced at indianapolis motor speedway and um you know having visited it and like you having watched the indy 500 a bunch of times and kind of understanding you know there is a level of intensity when you, when you guys are in these races is it as scary uh you know and i know it's again you're not actually driving the car but in terms of 
what's actually happening there. Because that place, you know, the, the guys that are rookies always say that it doesn't even seem like the car is going to make the corner, you know, when you're coming down the straightaway. So I guess talk a little bit about your Indy, you know, Indianapolis Motor Speedway experience. Is the place kind of as creepy as you thought it would be? Yeah, and it's and it's kind of funny, you know, again, uh, utilizing the Graham Rahal in, in some of that stuff and talking with him. I mean, I, I drag race. I don't know drafting. I don't, I don't really, I mean, I get it, but I don't, but just kind of talking with him on kind of how to pick up the draft, where to pick up the draft, where's really a, a crucial time to start picking up speed to where you can make certain passes, um, you know, of not making aggressive passes and putting yourself in a, a, a bad position, um, coming into a turn or, or what have you. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny. I'm like, man, I struggle in turn one, especially, you know, when I get, in a draft and he's like yep that's exactly how it is you know <laughs> turn one's kind of this kind of a little bit of a blind turn it's a little scary but it's it's, it's pretty cool i could tell you for sure a hundred percent with certainty that the the feeling that you get of the adrenaline the butterflies the 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 sweaty palms the nervousness the uncertainty of when you strap in a race car getting ready to go race it's the same feeling popping in this thing and when you're sitting there and they're doing driver intros and i mean these guys do the the whole thing you're in the car in the pre-race you you hear the announcers talking and they're doing their their live stream and they do the national anthem and you still get the same butterflies and chills that you would inside of a race car it's it's a pretty cool simulated experience of what it's like to really race yeah that's uh that's neat, and it's it's been cool to talk to the the guys that have been participating, and and obviously the ranks are growing. Jr's got his unit now, I believe. Doug Coletta's uh, been getting out and messing around, of course. I think in sprint cars mostly, which is obviously where he's uh, very comfortable. Has been a, a USAC champion in the past, so yeah, it's great. It's been a neat thing to watch you guys kind of dive in there and, and uh, fly the flag for the rest of us. It's, it's fun to watch. One of the things I want to talk to you about as well is, you know, not only the NHRA schedule, but basically everybody's schedule in drag racing has been just turned into a, a puree at this point. And we're starting to see some stuff form up to the fall for the fall. And in the world of big money bracket racing, that is incredible. It looks like between basically the month of about a 30 day rolling month from uh, late, you know, what, late September through the month of October there's going to be about two and a half to $3 million worth of bracket races within weeks of each other. It's insane. Oh yeah. And it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, you know, obviously, uh, I'm going to do my part in, in trying to uh, attend those races. You know, obviously we're, everything's in limbo right yeah. now. Um, because, you know, I mean, I haven't heard anything as far as any updates, on the uh, the NHRA schedule, I've heard a thousand different rumors. You and me both. <laughs> of it, every everybody's opinion of it, um, but uh, you know, there's just really no telling, kind of with uh, the the situation that we're in. So, um, I know my plan right now is to hopefully here in the next couple of weeks uh, go test my sportsman cars. We've got some changes uh, that we're trying, some small changes we're trying to do. So we just kind of want to be. Uh, uh, prepared coming into the season. Um, Todd Ewing and I, you know, we kind of uh, teamed up on the, uh, with, with our cars yeah. and we kind of traveled together and, and do all that. But we got some things that we're working on, some things that we, you know, some small changes, like I said, uh, Huntsville engine did our, uh, 
rebuilt some motors and so we're, we're fresh ready to go it's just we're you know we're trying to kind of follow uh, the the state's procedures and, and guidelines and you know adhere to all the rules but um you know we're hoping here in the next couple of weeks potentially go out and test uh probably do like a private test session type of deal and then um you know hopefully there's there's a couple uh bracket races on the schedule right now that we're looking at uh, hopefully get back racing here in the next couple weeks. Um, I know a couple of them have kind of pushed their their races back, uh, like I said, just with a lot of uncertainty with these bracket races. In order to make these payouts, they have to have the car count. So, right. um, you know, rightfully so. You know, I don't blame the promoters. Oh, no, 100%. In, in doing that. I'm just really hoping that uh, it doesn't fall on an NHRA race. But, you know, I mean, in a, NHRA racing is uh, – is my primary and, and that's my job. So, you know, obviously first and foremost going to, you know, ad- adhere to that schedule and, and do what we can to uh, hopefully contend for a championship this year. But um, yeah, if I can hit up some of these big money bracket races along the way, that'd, that'd be an awesome opportunity. Yeah. They're going to be coming hot and heavy in the fall. It looks like I was just, you know, talking to some guys the other day and, and the guaranteed million race, you know, move back to October. I think it's a, a week after the fling, something like that. The, uh, the Kyle Seipel, Peter Biondo fall fling race. And it's just like, I mean, the, just the the amount of money in that available potentially in that uh, small window of time is something that uh, this sport has never ever seen, and who knows if it'll ever see again. But but for this year, it's going to make uh, going to make a couple of people hopefully uh, pretty uh, pretty happy with their earnings. One of the things I wanted to mention uh, or ask you about, you mentioned making sure you were fresh and ready to go with the uh, the sportsman car. Uh, how much is this restart when it happens? Hopefully in June. Um, going to be like restarting an entire season because really i think by the time we get going this will be longer than the actual normal off season yeah yeah it'll you know it's, it's definitely going to be different for everybody um you know I, I think i think we're all kind of in the same boat we're all eager to get back out there and, and uh get back to racing again um i'm excited about the schedule uh you know and i know it's very difficult on the team's um, I know it's very difficult on the on the crew guys and and everything like that, you know, of of probably having a, a pretty compact schedule but a very busy schedule. Um, you know, for me, it's stuff that I'm used to. I mean, typically for me, from February to November, if I'm not racing the top field car, I'm racing the bracket cars. So I'm used to going, you know, basically eight Flat or nine out. months out of the year almost every single weekend maybe having four or five off weekends throughout the season um so that's you know something I, i'm used to so i kind of feel in a sense like you know i'm a little bit conditioned for for that um but you know it's it's going to be tough it's going to be tough on everybody um you know i, I think uh, from from top to bottom you know i just hope I just hope we can get back out to racing and, yeah. uh, you know, we can, we can do it in a, in a good, efficient way to where we can, you know, be able to hopefully have fans out at the racetrack. Cause obviously, you know, I mean, as, as, as much as, you know, we all like to watch it on TV, I really believe oh, yeah. that, uh, you know, our sport is a, uh, you know, you gotta be there type of sport. You 100%. gotta see it, you gotta feel it, you gotta smell it. So, you know, I think it might be a little bit of a setback, you know, for us to, uh, you know, not have fans out there. But, I, you know, I think at some point it's all going to go back uh, to the point. I just hope we can go back sooner than later in, in a safe way. One of the questions I've been asking everybody over the last couple of weeks, what is the food item or restaurant that you have not been able to eat at recently that you miss the most? Mm, well, I'm actually in California, so I'm a little <laughs> bit in and out. 
<laughs> I just had to wait 30 minutes to get it, but that's okay. <laughs> it was well worth the wait. Um, you know, I mean, I guess as far as just, you know, I've, I've been pretty confined into, uh, you know, either being out in uh, SoCal or, or being in Indy. Um, but I guess it's just kind of being on the road and you yeah. kind of start to think about like your, your little hotspot restaurants that you've a hundred percent, you know, accumulated along the way at certain racetracks. And, you know, it's just, uh, going out to dinner with, with, you know, your team or your, or your, uh, or your buddies and, you know, hitting up some local spots. So I guess it's kind of just, you know, been a little bit of that, you know, just not being able to, it's just different. I think, yeah. You know, going to to restaurants and everything's takeout. You know, it's just a, it's just a, a it's just a weird, a weird situation right now with, <laughs> with with everything going on. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're all. I guess we're all just trying to do our part. And that's a fact. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be back out. You know, hopefully we'll be back out soon. Yeah, I'm expecting. Um, I'm expecting to hear some news. Hopefully this week. I think Manitra um, is going to make some sort of an announcement, uh, if not this week, next week, in terms of what June's looking like and what potential plans are and stuff like that. So everything's still up in the air. But man, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day, and uh, I look forward to running into you hopefully first weekend in June in Gainesville, and if it's not there, uh, as soon as possible after that. So be good, man. Stay safe, and uh, thanks for taking some time, Sean. All right, thank you, Brian. Nice to hear from Sean Langdon. I am surely jealous of his Southern California hangout right now. That is a place that uh, a lot warmer and a lot less wet than where we are here in the Northeast, which has just been getting pounded with rain. Anyway, moving on, we have our second guest coming on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. He is a man that needs very little introduction in the world of sportsman drag racing, also the host of his very own very successful sportsman drag racing podcast. This is Bracket Racing. I'm joined now by Luke Bagaki. Luke, how you doing, man? Brian, I'm doing great, man. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Thanks for reaching out and uh, inviting me on today. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I mentioned earlier in the show, you yourself have a, a very popular podcast in the world of drag racing, known as This is Dra- This is Bracket Racing. is your is your po- podcast and your brand, which we'll get into talking about. But I guess the first thing I wanted to to bring up with you, and and one of the things you do so well is you talk a lot about the mental aspect of drag racing a lot deeper than just, you know, see the light, leave the starting line type of thing. So I guess for me, why is that your fascination? Why have you, why have you focused a lot of your energy on, on understanding that end of the sport? I honestly believe Brian and have for a long time that that is the, the, the deciding factor. Like we can all get a good race car you can teach yourself to hit the tree you know in a vacuum um the the finish line is obviously a little bit more tricky but with enough um practice and attention to detail you can get that but there's a lot of racers regardless of the category that can check all of those boxes and so then you ask yourself okay why why do the consistent winners why do the peter biondos or dan fletchers or gary stinnett's on down the line like why are they consistently there year after year and i i think it's pretty obvious like it's it's in the the mental makeup which is not completely a you know a genetic predisposition like it it, it can be taught and i think that that's where the the bulk of those truly elite racers separate themselves yeah it's interesting and it's like you know to me any sort of activity whether it's drag racing or it's shot putting or it's throwing a javelin or whatever, you know, humans find ways to refine what they do. Stuff that we have done for thousands of years, people still figure out a way to do it a little bit better. And in in the world of, of sportsman drag racing, 
it is such a finite, you know, that the competition is so close, the things you're talking about really do make the difference that, you know, if you're able to hone these abilities to within a couple of thousands better than the guy in the other lane, you're going to win the race. So do you think over time, like 20 years ago, did the guys that were really good at this stuff understand it to the level that we understand it today? No, I, I do think there was a greater discrepancy of the, the guys that were, you know, ahead of the curve, so to speak. You know, I mean, there, there were certainly competitors that stood out, you know, in decades past that were just ahead of the curve. And now I feel like the, the knowledge and the technology is more readily available, that the, that, that margin becomes slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. But I think by and large, the, the, consistent winners the the people that really stood out not only had control over them their thoughts and emotions but you know just to oversimplify it and use cliche like we're probably more willing to put in the work in all facets yeah that makes sense that makes sense there is uh and, and that's always going to be a factor right i mean it's whether we're talking <laughs> sure. about just maintaining the race car whether we're talking about being diligent on stuff like that you know the that effort carries you to a certain point and to your point you're making here, it is that additional that additional effort, that really finite understanding of how you function mentally is what's going to put you over the top. Um, it seems to me anyway, from outside looking in, it's become a passion of yours to, to try to share some of these tools with people. What you do on the This Is Bracket Racing podcast, what you do with some of the classes that you teach. Um, how important has that become as a part of your, I guess, giving back to the sport? Yeah, it's funny how it all got started. Like, um, I had a, I was pretty young at the time, probably mid 20s, and I had a, a buddy of mine that I raced with quite a bit, uh, Blake Allen, buddy of mine out of Oklahoma, that called and he said, Hey, man, would you be interested in, in teaching a, a class on like a how to race class? And I laughed it off and said, Like, there is nobody in their right mind that is going to pay to listen to me talk about racing. Like, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. And he kept on and kept on. I'm like, Blake, that's not going to work. And then uh, it was probably six months later, and he'd called several times, and he said, look, I've got 12 racers together. They've paid me. All you got to do is show up. Oh, wow. Okay, so <laughs> now I'm really nervous about it, right? But that first class, it was a live school at Mocan Dragway, and I can name you, I think, everybody that was in that class. Like, it was a life-changing moment for me because I came in thinking – Man, like, there's, <clears throat> is it, are these people going to be receptive to what I've got to say? Like, you know, am I going to get pushback? Because I'm like 25 years old at the yeah. time. And it had some success, but, uh, you know. Um, and the way that that went, like, it just, you realize that if people are willing to put forth the time, the effort, the money for something like that, they genuinely want to hear what you have to say and are receptive and that group was just amazing and to watch them grow over the course of two days and i'm still in contact with most of them i get literally changed the direction of my life and i thought this is really cool i want to do more of this you know it was uh i got as much out of it i think as they did and so we went down that road and then ultimately the the challenge was to scale that from 12 people at a time you know how do we reach more people and Obviously, the internet plays a big role in that, and hence this is bracketracing.com. But it is funny to look back because I never would have dreamed that that's the path that I would move. You know? Yeah, no, it's it's that's a great story, and uh, to to understand there was those twelve people there at uh, at Mocan is is fantastic. Did you find yourself after that class moving forward? Did you find yourself? Um, maybe even being a little bit more self-aware of things to, to to know okay this is 
you know, this is something that I feel like can succeed and you want to make sure you have maybe a larger, wider canon of of information to give or a larger, wider spectrum of things to talk about. So did that change, not change the way you race, but did it make you maybe even more introspective as to what you were doing? Yeah, really on, on both levels. First, the idea of like, yeah, I want to, I want to broaden this, which is actually much, much easier and simpler than you might think because as you work with racers like you just you get so many more maybe questions or situations that you haven't been in yourself or that you didn't necessarily think about that so many other racers feel the same way so it's just easier to identify them like there's never a shortage of content basically if you just listen right yeah um people are people are always looking for something and then to the flip side like you said not necessarily in in competition yourself what what uh, my you know, students, I guess, for lack of a better word, fail to understand, or it's, it's not as easy to understand, is how much it benefits me. Particularly, we used to do a lot of live schools, and usually we would do them prior to a, a big event. And there's just something about coming out of that classroom. Like, literally every time, the first time that I would go to stage, I, make, I would make a big deal in my presentations or discussions with the class about the precision of staging and just tickling the stage bulb on every time to know exactly where you're at. And then I would get in the car and you would just feel it's probably all self-induced, but I'm like, those people are all watching me right now. Like, I better do a good job of staging. And it just <laughs> makes you focus on some of those little things that you might otherwise take for granted, you know? Yeah, no, that's great. What kind of uh, what kind of learner are you? I mean, obviously you're an educator now, teaching a lot of people. What what kind of learner are you? Are you are you the type of person that that has a situation happen and then you digest it after the fact, maybe dissects what happened and understands how to make it better? Are you the type of person that can maybe foresee something coming? Talk talk to me about your learning process. My personal learning process is very much at my own pace. Like I am a reader. I like to take in information and kind of digest it on my own terms and think about how it you know could apply to me in the future or has applied to me in the past i'm not a super hands-on like i would almost rather kind of read the directions and iterate on my own than have one have someone specifically show me how to do it gotcha and in the in the process of developing this is bracketracing.com working with so many racers over the years i've realized that I'm in the minority. Like I think more of us just want that hands-on. Like, no, here's how you do it, and I'm the complete opposite. So I had to I had to change the way that I present information a lot more from the way that I would like to digest it. And obviously, there's a mixture there. There's a happy medium, but that for me, I've, I've always been more of a, I don't know, I guess deliberate um, kind of on my own pace learner. Yeah, that's cool. If um, and this may be a, a too specific question, but is there are there any specific rounds, any specific moments? in your career that you came away from thinking okay i've i've done i've shorted myself here i have to i have to improve my process i have to you know i have to make some sort of a change because this was a pivotal moment that i didn't succeed in is there anything that in your career that you can you can specifically look to and say this is something i need to improve on you did and then you've been able to apply that lesson to other people yeah um i mean just in general i think i could say that the goal, and I, I'd like to think that I attain it more often than not, is to learn something every time that I go down the racetrack, because it's a never-ending, it's a perpetual pursuit, right? But I will say, particularly to your point, when you say that the one round that sticks out to me uh, would have been in, in 2010, and 
It was really the first year that I chased NHRA points in okay. Super Comp. I'd, I'd had some success bracket racing and started off on fire and was leading the national points and very much in contention um, into like August. So I go to Brainerd. And the first round at Brainerd, I, it might have been my last national event to claim. So it was a, a pivotal, pivotal event for me in general. But um, the situation, like I don't, the weather wasn't significantly different on the weather station, but if you're watching the round of competition in front of you and at Brainerd, you can see everything from wherever you are in the staging lanes. So you can see every pair go down and everybody's crazy fast. Okay. And who do I end up drawing, but the worst possible draw in the staging lanes. I got Gary Stinn at first round. <laughs> oh God. And I'm literally watching. <laughs> I, I don't know that there's a pair in front of me that the slower car hasn't been slower than 87. Everybody's crazy fast. And at that time, <clears throat> I didn't have a ton of confidence. I hadn't been running super comp very long, so I didn't have a ton of confidence in my weather. Like it was all about like I was just trying to outdrive everybody. Okay. And I had kind of predetermined. I'm like, I don't care who I run, what's going on. Like, just don't cross the finish line first. You know, like, you can't cross first. I, obviously, it's, it's something's way faster than anybody thinks. Well, you run the one guy that has a better handle on this than anyone, <laughs> right. right? Number one. And I just like premeditate in that, which is always a bad idea. You know, I've come to learn. You don't ever make the decision before you stage. And uh, so I'm going to drop no matter what. And whatever it was, I had sped my car up a ton and I was going exactly what I thought coming into the round. If I don't pay attention to the scoreboards at all, I dropped stupid early to be 94. It, it, it's an easy win for Gary. Not only does he beat me, he goes on to win the race. Then he wins Topeka the next weekend. He ends up finishing, winning the world championship. I finished number two. And then, and then you go back to oh that. Oh my God. Right. Wow. That's unbelievable. Oh geez. And, I think I feel sick over that for you. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But I just look back on that now, you know, with, obviously more experience in the super classes as well, but just the idea that, look, you got your own combination and your own setup and your own weather predictions. Like you've at some point you've got to put faith in that and not allow yourself to be manipulated by everything that you see around you. You know, that was probably the takeaway. Yeah. That's um man, that's a, that's a story. My goodness. That is a, <laughs> that is a story. I had Austin Williams in the show last week, and Austin, of course, a brutally talented guy, whether he's in, in his dragster or in the stock eliminator car. And we, of course, talked about his, his win at Indy, the heads-up final round, all that kind of stuff. But that the, was awesome. Oh, it yeah. was incredible. But the, the coolest part of that story for me was that moment that the, the heads-up win for Austin never happens unless he starts planning for it about three rounds before. And mm -hmm. to hear him describe the process of going, okay, like he's watching the ladder every round, running all the scenarios and understanding, one, who he's maybe facing, two, what he can possibly do to make his car faster, and then three, how much time he's going to have to do it. And it's, it's, it's frustrating to me as a fan of sportsman racing who loves to talk about it and watch it that we can't, and we haven't so far done a better job of explaining that because there is not a person on earth who hears that story and doesn't think, holy crap, this is way more depth. It's way more depth to this than I ever thought. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, no question. And that is like that. That's part of that mentality that we talked about earlier that, that, that separates. It's not just how you think of yourself, how you talk about yourself or how do you, how you talk to yourself, I should say. It's that preparation of, 
not only exploring the possibilities, but there's an aspect of that too. In order to be ready for that moment, Austin had to believe that he was going to be in the final. Right. Right. And and then have the foresight to plan ahead and think about what that. Yeah, and and I guess the difference, you know. It's not cockiness. It's obviously confidence. And if you don't show up with that, then you may as well not even drive through the gate. Yeah, what are you doing there? Right. So one of the things I want to talk about as well is, uh, you know, outside of the NHRA, you know, obviously with this, the, the fact that the sport has come to a screeching halt because of everything going on in the world, everybody's schedule has been torn up and thrown in the air like confetti, <laughs> including uh, the schedule for these very premier uh, very uh, prominent high-dollar races. And we're talking at least one race with a guaranteed million-dollar purse this year and others that have humongous purses. And a lot of these races are starting to stack up on top of each other in the fall. And I guess from your perspective as a competitor, um, let's let's play the, the card that we're actually going to have these races and this is going to happen in the fall. What does this say to you about one, the guys that are dedicated to doing this, does this help people or does this harm people in terms of just stacking them up back to back to back? Man, it will be, it's impossible to say, I think, and it will be fascinating to just watch it unfold. Jed and I have discussed this a little bit on, on our show, the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. And to your point, uh, two events on the schedule for, for 2020 guaranteed a million dollars or more, right? Yeah. Um, and one of those got pushed back from its original uh, Memorial Day weekend date. That's the, the Great American Bracket Race in uh, Memphis into October. I think two weeks prior to the, the annual, you know, the original million, uh, which will be in Montgomery. And then hanging in the balance somewhere is the Spring Fling Million originally scheduled to take place at, in April in Vegas. It's obviously been postponed and it's going to fall somewhere later in the year, presumably. Um, can three of those events in whatever it ends up being six weeks time, like, can they all survive? I don't know. Is it good for the sport? You could probably argue that either way. Is it good for the racers? I don't think... It's a little bit different because the Memphis race, Brits race, was a pre-entry deal. And yes. Myself and, and most of us, that, that money's already gone. Like, we're not – so it's not like an upcoming expense. Right. Um, so it's not as if if you wanted to go to all three, you would have to shell out the money for all three of them within two months' time. But even at that, how many of even the, the elite racers that may have the deep pockets, can you really afford and justify doing – three of those style events that cost the the time invested everything else in that shorter period of time i i doubt it i think one and probably all of them suffer to some extent yeah and and one probably takes the brunt a little bit more than the others but i'd love to be wrong you know from 100 yeah. I, I hope that everybody succeeds and but it's just hard for me to fathom what that looks like and then you've got the complete wild card of Right now, it feels like, I know it's not across the board because this this pandemic and the, the economic situation has hit every individual uniquely, but it feels like, as sports and racers, like we're just chomping at the bit to get back out there. Yeah. But at some point, uh, I don't, there will be economic and social reper repercussions to this. And how much effect does that have? That's the wild card that I don't think anybody can predict. Oh, you're 100% right. And, you know, there is an aspect of it that's like, you know, uh, as a guy that, you know, loves drag racing history and all this stuff, it will be a, a perhaps a once in a lifetime, likely a once in a lifetime situation to have this much money 
in this short a window offered in drag racing because we're talking about three or four events and there likely will be other events happening for you know piddly little prizes like ten or twenty thousand dollars around the country <laughs> uh, as well as all the other stuff that'll be happening in different aspects of the sport but um, we're gonna see one way or the other we're gonna see a concentration of this of this talent and of this of this financial gain potentially from these races, whether they're as big as they possibly could be or suffer some, as you said, that I don't think we'll see again in our lifetimes. And, you know, before we, before we went on the air here, you and I were talking and, you know, there is an aspect of this entire situation that, that you mentioned to me that if you can remove emotion from it, my God, it's, it's the most fascinating thing I think we'll ever experience. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's the thing. I mean, I could say it impacts us all individually, but if you can step back from that, it is, what's happened over the course of the last month is fascinating if you take the helicopter view and then what happens going forward whether it's specifically now the next month but who knows the next three months the next six months the next year it's there's to me so much more of this to unfold it's incredible and to your point like big dollar bracket racing assuming that it's hard to envision right now that this continues the purses continue escalating like they have for probably the last two or three years like it feels like we've we've hit the, the climax there but you just think about how quickly that's escalated because for oh man yeah 20 years like i remember going to my first million and what that would have been 99 and how exciting that was and then uh years later you know getting to the split for the first time and actually the idea that hey we've got whatever it was three hundred thousand dollars to cut up among 10 of us right wow yeah and now you just think that's basically the the number roughly you know 300 grand to to in the pot in the total for the last 20 years and now you've got two races that if you get to that point and get to have that discussion you're talking in three or four times the money it's just insane when you think about it oh it's incredible it's uh it's really it's really incredible and you know, for you as a racer and as somebody who's a, a thought leader, I think, in, in that space of drag racing, what are the things when you when we talk about sports and racing, what are the things that we need to do as media people, as announcers, as anybody? What are the things that we need to be doing better to help engage people? And trust me, I don't have any sort of dreams that's, you know, we will never have full grandstands to watch super gas. I love super gas. I respect everybody that competes in it. You're not going to have that, but I do feel as though we don't do near as good enough job of telling people how interesting what they should be watching is. So from your perspective, what do we need to be doing better? In my opinion, it's all about <clears throat> telling the story of the individuals because on some level, like the, the nitro funny car is a fascinating machine. Right. And I guess on some level, so is a super comp dragster. But I don't think that that creates engagement and creates resonate, er, resonates necessarily with the audience. I think what resonates is realizing that this guy or girl driving this car has a job just like you do, has a family just like you do, fights a lot of the same, you know, uh, emotional issues inner demons whatever like something that we can connect with because that's what we can get by and that's what we can root for or against right and and that's ultimately what creates that connection and i just i think back to like the the world series of poker when it became so popular on tv and yes. they did a great job of that of it was more about the people than it was about the game and you came to love them or you came to hate them either way you had a rooting interest and you just can't convince me that watching people play Texas Hold'em is more exciting than watching people drag race. 
I think we can capitalize on a lot of the same things. That that to me is always the key. That's something that my father kind of instilled in me years ago. Is it's more about the people than it is about the the machines and the technology. And obviously, there's a mixture of both, but I think that's really key. Yeah, and and the you know the greatest testament to this in this moment is. There are now 1.3. They had 1.3 million people on Sunday watching the NASCAR guys play the yes. simulator games, and mm-hmm. so yes, there's a reality to the the pictures. There's a, a, a reality of the the sight. You know, the cars do look real and the sounds pretty good, whatever. But ultimately, 1.3 million people are watching because they care about the people in the simulator. They don't care about mm-hmm. the stupid video game car. You know, Jeff Gordon drove a race car this week and the rating spiked. You know why? Because people thought, oh, cool, I get to see Jeff Gordon with a steering wheel in his hands talking. And it's like, if there is any more clear example of what actually motivates a, a viewership in motorsports, that's it to me. Yeah, 100%. Because when you've got that as an inroad, like here's someone that you care about for whatever reason, then you've got the opportunity to talk about how fascinating the machine is or what I love about sportsman racing and in particular maybe the super classes is you can begin to introduce the the strategy involved and how it is you know a chess match at 180 miles an hour like i find that stuff fascinating but in order to get to that point you've got to build that foundation of here's the guy or the girl doing it and here's why you should care yeah no man it's uh it's really cool and and uh everything you're doing is great i feel like um again it when we when we look at the, the the way sportsman drag racing has evolved, the level of competition, and this takes nothing away from people that have been doing it for many years, but the level of competition among the young up and coming drivers and the established drivers from this particular generation is just is just absolutely phenomenal. And um, you're one of the guys helping to drive it forward, man. You get the respect of a lot of people out there. You have a lot of audience that pays attention to your teachings, your philosophy, and uh, it's really cool that you're able to spend some time with us today. I think uh, I think people will find this really enlightening, Luke. Man, again, I appreciate the opportunity, and, and uh, same to you. Like everything that you do, I love listening to you at the racetrack. I love following you on Twitter. Like you, you've got an... an in invested experienced and 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 just a smart perspective on things that i really enjoy and i I know i speak for hundreds or thousands of racers all across the country you're doing a hell of a job man thank you very much luke and make sure you pay attention to this is bracketracing.com you can go to the website and you can listen to the podcast and uh you will enjoy what you hear luke thanks be good be safe i know your son just had his birthday so enjoy the time you're getting with him and hopefully i will see you turn on some wind lights at the track in the not too distant future Awesome. Thanks, Brad. You bet. Thanks, man. And so ends another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Certainly appreciate you tuning in. Getting some great insight there from both Sean Langdon and particularly from Luke, who is uh, a premier thinker, a premier racer, and a guy who I hope has helped to maybe reshape, if not reshape, help to shape your opinion of the mental side of sportsman drag racing, something that he has specialized in and educated many, many racers on over the years and brought them additional success. It's a fascinating way to consider drag racing beyond going very, very fast in a very straight line. We'll be back with another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast next week, looking to keep the vibe going with some sportsman racer action, as well as some of our NHRA Mellow Yellow Drag Racing pros, and I'll have a little fun tribute Uh, audio tribute up my sleeve on next week's episode stay tuned we'll be back again to see you next week please continue listening and spreading the word about the nhra insider podcast and please continue following nhra.com nhra on facebook on youtube and twitter as well as the instagrams
to get the photos. You can follow me on Instagram too, at Brian Loans. Check out my page. It's all about automotive history. I think you will dig it. We'll see you next week right here on the NHRA Insider Podcast.